Murder, murder, murder. <laughs> Who are we murdering? That's the code open. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, I've just decided that. And unless anyone says anything better, that's the code open. Yeah. yeah. No, there we go. That's brilliant. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter. Joining me this week, we have got Eugenie at MemesTD on Twitter. Tyrone at Tyrone Wilson on Twitter. Sam at Sam underscore JJA on Twitter. Sam is our very special guest this week. Uh, they are the undergraduate academic officer at Durham Students Union uh, with lots of thoughts on higher education policy. Uh, Sam, thank you for coming on. No problem. Good to have lots of thoughts on higher education policy because that's what we are talking about this week. Labour's Shadow Education Secretary Angela Rayner announced the new policy to abolish predicted grades. Uh, it's the current system of applying to university using grades predicted to you um, by your teachers will no longer be the case under a future Labour government. Instead, uh, all university admissions will be post-qualification. Instead, so you apply with your actual grades that you have, a kind of system which you'd think makes a lot of sense and that we would have already but we for some reason don't sam two things why do you think we don't have post-qualification admissions already and why are they such a good idea okay so i've been a long fan of post-qualification applications yeah. uh, applications and admissions since i was since i applied to university you can find brilliant bitchy tweets of mine from 2016 complaining about it um but they I think the current resistance is surrounding like deadlines turn around and things like that so there appears to be sort of a stalemate gets formed every time this is brought up surrounding universities and schooling and schools where either schools will have to like like move their exams earlier or like universities will have to start later or just have like a, a concentrated workload um which like obviously is difficult to navigate, but when you consider that literally ev- like nearly every other country that has a higher education system manages to do it, it's like probably something that can happen. Um, on why they're good, uh, well rather predicted grades are bad, is that your predicted grades, like we know that predicted grades are like largely inaccurate. I think I've seen a statistic that's like only sixteen percent of predicted grades are accurate. That is correct. They. Yeah, like yeah. they massively under they underpredict um, students from like low income backgrounds, which means that like they just are incredibly unlikely to get into university. And also, just it is a slightly bizarre thing that your ability to get into university like relies a large amount on your ability to say to a teacher, "Hello, please believe in me," which is obviously something that some students can do, but often. Like, a lot of people can't do that, and your ability to do that relies massively on your social capital. Um, so there's loads of cases, especially with, like, with like disabled students and, um, like, students of colour, that they they get, like, predicted lower grades because, like, their teachers just don't believe in them. Um, so it, it removes that, and it equalises the playing field a little bit, and also just removes the weird, stressful system we have currently, which is, like, a double application system so you apply get accepted and then but wait not really and then you have to wait like four months before you find out whether you've actually gotten in during that time you're already planning your life it's just such a it's such a weirdly bizarre system that we have currently i just yeah it's just a good thing to get rid of predicted grades 
And if you didn't get in, then you sometimes have to go through another application period of clearing, uh, but in a rapidly condensed time period of like a day, like three yeah. hours, um, which which is absolutely insane. Um, you kind of said everything I was going to say. I completely agree. Um, the, the 16% statistic is from Angela Rayner's announcement uh, piece in yeah. The Guardian. And she also said um, that we are the only country with over a million students where a pre-qualification system is used. The only country... Um, so yeah, we definitely can move to a post-qualification system. It's not that big a deal. Speaking anecdotally, um, on, on predictive grades, um, I didn't know that you could bargain with your teachers to get better predicted grades when I got oh, given wow. mine. Um, yeah, I had absolutely no idea. And then well, after I got them, all my friends came and was like, oh yeah. So they predicted me like an A, but then I was like, oh no, come on. And they were like, all right, A star. And I'm just kind of like, how is this a thing? How is like this the system? They're like it just favors how well spoken and how persuasive you are. Yeah. Um. And like obviously, there is always an element of that in education admissions. Like if you're going to an interview, um, at a university, it the outcome will greatly depend on how well spoken and how confident you are. But like, yeah. uh, for for your general university admissions, for 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 one which doesn't require an interview. Uh, that shouldn't be a factor um yeah. and as someone who has gone through both kinds of application process so has done the pre-qualification uh admissions um when i was at sixth form uh dropped out of that university and has since done post-qualification admissions post-qualification admissions are significantly less stressful and much better <laughs> um and i cannot even like like seeing this past results day and seeing my future soon to be peers and their stress about it i cannot even fathom how it must have been to be have like so much pressure riding on um a university place while doing your a levels and some people say like oh well if you get rid of predicted grades then you're removing that incentive um to do well this is like, oh well if i get you know, I've got to do well because I've got my place at Oxford that I want to go to. And like, yeah, but also I don't think that incentive, I don't think removing that incentive will have as detrimental an impact because like, just because you're taking away, you're just because you're moving the offer in admissions period back doesn't mean that those same students aren't going to be like, oh yeah, I might want to apply to this place. And I know that I need to get X grades to apply to this place. So I'm going to work to get X grades. Um, yeah. It also it's, sort of like mental. increases aspiration a little bit because, not aspiration, God, um, but like <laughs> ab ability because like if you know that you've got a certain amount of grades, you might be more, you know you've got grades, then you might be more likely to apply to a better university as opposed to like in situations where you were predicting really, really low yeah, you were predicted really low grades. So you were like, oh, this is the best I can achieve. Mm. And under the current system, like really, really like top Russell Group universities never go into clearing and adjustment is something that's never spoken about. Um, and like there are certain universities that would rather have fewer people on the course than accept people like than go through clearing or accept people with lower grades or some that will accept many with like, like accept many grades lower as opposed to going to clearing because they see it as a reputational thing and just some that have like massively oversubscribed courses. So you're literally just preventing a load of students being able to go to a university that best suits them for like for a completely arbitrary reason mm. based on how well their teachers like them. Mm. 
You mentioned adjustment, um, and there's a really incredible statistic on that, also from The Guardian. Uh, so around 21% of AAB applicants are underpredicted each year. Um, and the total number of students who got accepted into university last year was 533,360. Um, and out of all of those, only 880 people used adjustment. No one has heard of it. So the main question I've kind of got is that obviously it does seem like good and sensible policy, but the main thing that I kind of immediately wonder is how it is done on uh, in other countries. Um, I presume a lot of people have read the piece uh, by Stephen Bush in The New Statesman um, that basically said that it's good policy that we that is going to be agreed on by pretty much all the stakeholders in education policy but that it's very unlikely to survive consultation because of the logistical uh, requirements that it would impose. So either having to put on another term after the exams have happened or uh, basically just having to reorient term dates. And so what I kind of immediately think is how is this done in other countries and also what, what is the idea of how this is going to work kind of in office? I think that like it's it's one of those things that is probably just going to be difficult for them to hash out but given that we know that like our system is so weird and it will like ucu did like a massive report on post-qualification applications like it will have to be as a part of a wider more holistic like like a wider approach to reviewing uh, admissions exams and everything like that um but i think the headline is good but yeah like there is a definite need to flesh out like the little bits that make it actually useful and change the things that it proposes to change. Because I kind of think back sort of to when I was sort of a, a, a well now ten years ago, horrifyingly, um, when I was when I was at school and kind of actually wondering sort of from my own perspective, what do I kind of think would have worked best? I mean, I don't know what kind of everyone else in the chat kind of thinks about how they'd have best liked to go about it. Um, I, I kind of think back and wonder how different my university application process would have been because it was a process of going through getting rejected by uh, a, a couple of universities and then accepting one that gave me an offer that I thought was uh, well that I thought was quite sort of flattering and I almost kind of in retrospect I kind of was quite glad that I ended up with the university that turned out to be a really good kind of fit for my skills and what I was interested in and did a really good kind of degree but I don't know that I necessarily accepted it for the best reasons um and I kind of wonder sort of what everyone else in the, on the um uh, pods kind of experiences of university application were like and how they think it could have been structured a lot better for them I remember finding the lack of um the lack of any kind of timelines beyond kind of you you'll apply before Christmas um uh full disclosure I I applied to Cambridge and I did get in so the Oxbridge deadlines are earlier but obviously I applied to four other places as well and what I found very difficult about that was I had kind of I was waiting on things and people getting back to you at different times and just like Sam was saying you know it's very stressful you're doing a lot of work there's a lot going on uh in your life it's very important and then you've got all this additional thing of refreshing your emails all the time and like waiting and waiting I remember one university I waited um they didn't get back to me until maybe it was April in the end having applied in late October and they they just said to me um so I did history and they said to me um they rejected me and then they said oh but if you'd like you can reapply to do his uh, archaeology and I just remember being completely confused by that and just being like well what what like I don't want to be an archaeologist I want to be a historian like that's quite different um but um 
yeah, and just feeling like the fact that they could they could wait. That one university waited months and months and months. But I remember when I applied, you know, another one got back to me within two weeks with an offer. You know, Oxbridge runs on a very specific uh, timetable that you know you know when things are going to happen. You know, people get invites for interviews in the same week. The interviews happen over the same like two weeks in early December. Everyone finds out third week of January, and that's kind of that. Um, so at least with that, there was like a refreshing openness. And even if universities decide, you know, I I share kind of Tiran's maybe concern is the wrong word, but I, I wonder about you know just that the amount of change that would have to happen both in schools and universities about whether this could ever happen. Although I do think it should. Um, if there could just be some, in general, some greater way of formalizing it and just removing so many of the, those kind of long stretches of concern and not hearing things and everyone's having a different experience and it's all very kind of complicated yeah I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about that with your experience in an SU or yeah what what you have to kind of add to that yeah it's definitely like a really complicated process I remember hating applying to university um like it was just so needlessly stressful and then my author for Durham was aced RAA and the like just feeling so anxious because A stars are so like weird at A level that being like, oh no, I must have like not gotten it. What if, like, like what if I did this thing? It could have been a matter of mere marks, and so just been being like so stressed. Um, in a way that just like was so unhelpful and. Yeah, like, I just think the system probably just needs a complete redig, to be honest. It does need to be done with, like, a load of other things. The way, uh, like, uni- like more selective universities, um, their time periods work, I I kind of don't see necessarily why you couldn't move that to a, post, um, a post-qualification system, because they already have very, very tight turnarounds, as it is. Um, so I could just sort of think that even in those cases, you could sort of budge them along to the summer because in a lot of like even in countries even in countries where like they have like post-qualification applications or admissions they in in a lot of them they still do have like quite tight turnarounds like literally a matter of like three weeks or so um and I just think that people would be because people necessarily not be applying to like five universities because you would have a better understanding of like what you would actually get into it would probably be a lot less complicated and that universities would have to sort of sift through less applications. Both of you touched on grades um, and that kind of links to my experience of the application process as well. Um, what I really dislike about it um, is uh, the inconsistency in the offers which are given out. For my first degree that I did, I say degree, I did a term. My offer, I think, was ABB or AAB, I'm not sure. Um, but then when I actually arrived, um, I think the vast majority of people there did not reach the offer, but were let in nonetheless um, because of the lifting of the cap on student numbers in uni- most universities um, kind of letting the they try and get everyone in through the door just because yes. they, they need the money more than anything yes. else. Yes. I don't know if we've really seen evidence that that's contributed to a lowering of standards yet, but I know I did find it frustrating to know that I'd worked quite hard to meet an offer, which it then turned out I didn't need to work as hard to meet. I mean, obviously, in hindsight, I'm glad I did work hard, but 
when you're in that context it's a bit like oh okay so i could have not had this much stress and still had the same outcome and that kind of ties into like the whole unconditional offers thing as well um i don't know if you guys would agree on this i'm not super keen on unconditional offers pre-qualification obviously so i had an interesting kind of experience on this in that i accepted uh, an offer that was way below what i was likely to get um because the university i went to the university of essex was um a very esteemed institution which nonetheless was very determined to very determined to have as many kind of good people as earlier or well what they saw as good people kind of early on in the process so they offered quite reduced uh, offers that were almost akin to unconditional offers. So they, my offer was, I think, akin to like if you can get an ABE, then you can come in. And I know for sure, uh, I know for sure that that really kind of reduced my motivation to try all that hard in my exams. And uh, having just come off a couple of rejections, you know, I I was just looking for someone to make me feel good. Um, and so, um, so I, I was, uh, I, I was kind of, uh, Aren't we all? yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I was kind of tempted in quite a lot by that and I really liked the campus when I went there for interview um, and so I, I didn't necessarily accept it for kind of the best reasons and uh, I don't know that actually I necessarily uh, performed the best that I could have done in my A-levels as a result um, because I did receive that offer. I certainly tried a lot less hard in the um, originally kind of for my conditions. I had to drop um, uh, my tutor made me drop theatre studies which I wanted to carry on and made me uh, carry on philosophy for my A2 which I really did not want to do but he, they, uh, my tutor made that the condition of backing my application for one of my universities uh, that I then got rejected from um, and so uh, I then basically just did not try at all for philosophy for the rest of the year because I, I just couldn't be fucked. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really want to do it. I, I barely turned up kind of to, to the lessons. I didn't really try at all for the exam and so I ended up uh, only getting a B for that um and but like the other two I kind of I, I still kind of got an A in those but because I kept on trying I probably could have got all A's had I done the kind of whole right you have to try as hard as possible you don't know how the applications are going to turn out try as hard as you can because you don't want to ruin your chances when it comes to the application having the whole thing kind of based on predicted grades I, I really think it's quite unhealthy in some ways particularly with unconditional offers kind of going on but so far as I know the government is kind of trying to clamp down on that anyway Yes, they are. There is also the argument about contextual grades. I'd be interested to see what you guys think about this. Um, well, Sam, Sam, first, what do you think of contextual grades as someone who deals with access? <laughs> um, they are very good. Yes, okay. we should have considerably more of it. Um, I just think that it's it's really weird to me that like a lot of universities don't have them. Um, so contextual grades are sort of like when you, um, when like the university during application takes into account like, um, like like your school's attainment as well as um, other things like so like the attainment of like socioeconomic group and stuff like that. Um, so so for example, in sort of a um, in in, in a, like a post admission in a post qualification admission system, they're extra good because say for example you have the bad luck to be stuck with like a really, really, really bad maths teacher and you get a D in maths under a normal situation. That's just a D, right? That's not, it doesn't matter. Like it's like a university would write you off. But if your university can be like, oh, within the context, like when a context is applied, we can see that everybody else got like Ds, Es and Us in maths. Like that sort of massively changes the scope. And also obviously just like, it's super good and super useful for like 
people from like lower socioeconomic backgrounds and their access to university um they're just generally really really good um it's kind of it might mean that some people that are more um like that have that go to schools with that get considerably better grades don't get into as many don't get into all of the universities they want to but in terms of bright kids that don't normally get access to university or access to good universities like it just should be done in context and it's sort of bizarre to me that like so many universities don't don't contextualize the grades yeah they're good yeah i i did definitely appreciate that um element of context when i was doing my second round of um the post qualification um admissions um of like we will be more impressed if you got if you kind of like met the uh base offer but you went to a really terrible school then if you like got um higher than the base offer but went to like eton whatever yeah <laughs> Um, and I definitely agree with that. I think my the only thing which gives me pause about it, and which always, I don't know, it, it's it's just like I I don't, as someone who comes from a lower lower socioeconomic background, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I I don't like the idea of being told that I can get into X institution with like uh, of being told like oh uh, we're going to give them like a lower threshold to pass and give the richer kids the higher threshold that they need to pass i there's something about that which sits uncomfortably with me and that's probably just like a personal like you know being like stubborn pride thing <laughs> but like personally i, I just want to know that i can meet the higher threshold as well and i want to be like well if you're going to give them a higher threshold then i want to be able to meet that one as well anything which involves some kind of like social contribution or like social engineering in the case of private schools context should be taken into account all the time but i yeah I, I just don't like the idea of being told that i i can meet a lower threshold because of where i come from kind of thing yeah i think that's true um i understand why some students might feel like that but i think it's also it's kind of that very like it's it's every argument i guess around like every basic argument surrounding like almost quotas and stuff like mm. yeah it is like it can feel uncomfortable but at the same time if like if you go to a place where like teaching like the teaching quality in your school is lower or like the or like like you just don't come from the kind of background where like you would necessarily get good grades or whatever you do sort of there is sort of like the working twice as hard element to it that I think is kind of important like it's obviously sick and we should definitely recognize people from low, like students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that do really really well but also part of the reason why we can see so much educational inequality is not because students aren't trying or students don't care about their education it's that they like they just don't have the access and the tools to do it um so like contextual offers like address that imbalance and seek to redress that inequality and then with with the then at university allow people to like access to those other institutions and that 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 links in with the predicted grades thing as well because uh also mentioned in the initial angela rayner announcement piece that was the some findings from the sutton trust which does a lot of work on 
uh, access and inequality and etc cetera, etc cetera, um, which found that um, almost 3,000 disadvantaged but high achieving students have had their grades um, under predicted without sufficiently contextual admissions I suppose you're ending up in that kind of like doubly disadvantaged scenario where um, because you come from a disadvantaged background your teachers are maybe like subconsciously under predicting your grades so you're therefore not applying to as good universities but even if you do still want to apply to um, better universities you maybe are not existing in the in the best context I suppose uh, if, you, if you if you go to a school which is quite underachieving then you're gonna struggle to meet any higher offer anyway Tiran, you referenced the stephen bush piece earlier that it will fail in consultation um and we haven't really touched on how it can truly work practically do people think that uh the marking period should just be sped up so that uh you do your a levels at the same time so it's kind of it's what like june that people do them late may um and then marking happens really quickly and you get the results in july um do people think that a level should be brought forward um people some people have criticized that for saying like oh well it means people will get less learning in but like if you bring them forward like a month it's i don't think there's gonna be that tangible a difference um or um could you have a situation where there's basically it's like basically enforced that you take a gap year um that you which are used to apply to university so the the schedule stays the same but everyone just takes a year out from school i personally wouldn't mind that i think that could be quite good i think gap years are generally quite a good thing um however also at the same time there are going to be people who come from troubled homes for example and maybe it's not particularly feasible to be staying at home for another year i don't know what, what do you guys think on that well, I think maybe I have a take that comes from a slightly different perspective to everyone else. Um, as someone who is hoping to become an academic, actually, so thinking about it from the university's point of view, I'm going to pivot and then let you guys pivot back to schools. <laughs> um, I think what I've been thinking about this summer is uh, is how that for academics the summer is a really important time for them because it's when they can, a lot of people do their own uh, kind of independent research over the summer because that's when they have that like you know if say uni wraps up in kind of mm, some point in June um, and people come back in mid-September that's when they can go out and do research the field trips you know all the library stuff um, and all that kind of thing and uh, if you were to condense down the kind of application process back into the summer vacations I know that for many people I know who who work in academia that would be difficult for them because um that would involve losing amounts of research time which I imagine is is pretty highly treasured you know if you're working and teaching and if you do a lot of teaching I mean obviously it would reduce the workload that's happening in the kind of autumn but then you're reallocating that into the summer and kind of eating into that time. And I can see there being quite a bit of pushback from universities about that. I think it's interesting what you were saying about the way it would impact schools. And I guess I was looking at uh, the UCU report is uh, uh, is very interesting because it's got lots of different countries and like the breakdown of like when people apply, when they get when they sit the exams, when they get the results and how long people wait. And yeah, and in some countries it is like the turnover is like three weeks or something like that so they do the, the kind of condense massively condense the whole application process all the way down but i'd be interested in what 
in what you think about this, Sam, you know, as someone who uh, is kind of involved in the kind of student union side of things, maybe has had conversations about this. But I can see schools just being very reticent to kind of change things. And I know that's just part of that is kind of institutional malaise. But, you know, the kind of huge impact that potentially this could have on like the structure of the school year, um, you know, when the summer holidays are, you know, all, all this kind of thing. Because um, I, I, I'm not, I have to say, uh, Jasper, I'm, I'm not too uh, convinced about like compulsory gap years. But, you know, if you think post-application happens in Australia, but that's also because of the seasonal difference that, that the, the summers are different. So, you know, starting university in January is like less of a big deal than, you know, than it would be here. Yeah. So I think that it probably would require, like, it obviously just would require some restructuring. But I don't necessarily think that's bad. Like, because currently, like, you have, because obviously you just have, like, students applying the people like they or there already has to be that sort of timeline like concentrated timeline anyway during clearing so like people are already having this experience where they're like applying and applications are happening in a very very short period of time like literally like a day for a lot of people so i think that like that already happens um it would just be like sizing it up but yeah like just they would just have to massively change i'm not like how the school year works i'm not sure that I would be in favour of, like, compulsory gap years. I think that would be, like, my own personal brand of hell. Um, I wouldn't, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, did, I I would not want to spend another year, and I would just probably not have Me gone too, to uni. Yeah. I think if I, like, if I had to take a year out of education, I doubt that I would have gone to university or would have been able to, like, adjust to university the way I did, even though I adjusted to university very badly. Um yeah like why why do you think why do you why do you think that sorry i'm I'm just curious i'm like um i think because i sort of going which is probably slightly unhealthy for me but like going i think going from education to education made me sort of be like okay i sort of know like almost like i know what like what, what the rule book we're playing by is or i kind of get what i'm supposed to be doing here Whereas if I took a year out, I feel like I kind of would have lost myself a little bit. Though I know it works in the countries, but like as a person, please, if I had taken a year out, bad, bad. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. National, <laughs> national service. No, no, no. I don't actually. Cancel yourself. I don't actually. I'm not being serious. I'm not being serious. And I don't want national service. No, but in seriousness, I think it would be great if there was um not compulsory stuff, but if if we had like something more akin to like the, the, they've got the Peace Corps kind of in America, where um uh where where. I think it's around about that age, kind of uh, young adults can volunteer to kind of go ab- abroad and volunteer in and kind of helping out in, uh, I, I, I don't know if it is necessarily deprived kind of our countries, but they've got a lot kind of more along those sorts of things. And I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to kind of encourage those sorts of things and have those options available um, and have that much more of a thing if as one way of making it all fit in be it some kind of, not necessarily military national service, some sort of uh, international or kind of domestic. The domestic service sounds really bad. Either way, um, more kind of things of that nature. Um, I think that would be a fairly good idea if there were things like that that were available to do to kind of help widen people's horizons. Yeah, and of course, 
you know, with that in mind as well, it's good to remember, obviously, there are lots of people who are kind of fed into the university pipeline and maybe that's that's not what they want to do and always having that availability to go into higher education or um sorry further education or apprenticeships or you know university doesn't have to be the be all and end all so if we are going to have this kind of institutional change um you know always factoring that into it well as well i think is really important um i know it's not the spiciest take in the world but um it's always something to worth reiterating i think when thinking about people taking those further stages after completing school I tweeted this, but like post-qualification applications are, uh, applications and admissions are a good first step, but they are not the only step and they are not a silver bullet to access in higher education. And I think there might be a slight issue in that like, we've spent a lot of time talking about like, like we as like the higher education sector for the past week have spent a lot of time talking about um, post-qualification applications and admissions, but we do still really, really need like the reintroduction of grants and burst, like higher bursaries being offered and like things like contextual offers. Um, Cause like without that, we're absolutely not going to solve access to higher education. And like if higher education is to be accessible for all, which post uh, qualification admissions starts to do, we need to do all of the other little bits that make sure that like actually, if they want to, everybody can go to university. On the note of broader, education reforms uh joe obviously isn't here he is on holiday um but if he were here uh he would talk about uh, abolishing sats um which is also labor policy uh, and he would recommend joe bowler's elephant in the classroom for more info that's the message which he asked me to pass on i would also say um well i don't know if anybody else was watching this a couple of weeks ago the documentary on bbc2 about um uh about inequalities in uh, university and the difficulties of finding grad schemes and internships and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, there was a really interesting statistic on it about um, internships and grad schemes. And it said that since, since I want to say 2005, but I don't think it's 2005, since undisclosed year, the number of uh, students going to UK universities has doubled. But in that exact same time frame, the number of uh, internships and grad schemes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has basically not moved at all. So, yes, 100%. Let's uh, abolish predicted grades, move to post-qualification admissions, contextualise admissions more, and then fund loads more apprenticeships and grad schemes. Like, I think pretty much like any creative industry job, you probably don't need it as a degree. Um like my first, the, the the first degree again. Uh, the term of the degree I did was film studies, and on my first day, um, I turned to a guy I was working with and said, "Oh, so what are you? Why did you want to choose film?" And he said, and I quote, uh, "I don't know. I just like watching them." And I was like, "Cool." Uh, so usually that ties in with what you said about people being fed into the system, and maybe it's not necessarily best for them with industries like film and any creative artistic industry i think you'd be much better served doing an apprenticeship um and also studying like the theory alongside in an institution so those kind of like apprenticeship degrees degree apprenticeships do already exist but they just need to be massively expanded um i reckon even more academic subjects could do with apprenticeships as well you know if you if you're doing like a politics degree for example and you spend some time working in parliament or in uh, like x 
NGO, third sector company, whatever. Um, that could be a really good thing. Ditto for if you're doing law, going to work in a law firm, you know, just just like massively expanding those opportunities. Um, so not only are you learning the theory in your kind of like stuffy old academic university room, but uh, you're also actually learning what it is really like so you don't have some kind of massive shock when you move into the world of work as so often happens. Pivoting uh, from discussion about higher education policy uh, and uh, degrees and admissions and such forth, we're going to be talking about serial killers, uh, specifically Charles Manson and the Manson murders, uh, because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, came out last week. I saw it literally a couple of hours ago. Uh, it features Charles Manson and the Manson family. Uh, it was built up and hyped up quite a lot in the pre-film marketing and the initial discussion when the film was announced. Um, a lot of people saying like, Tarantino is probably the worst person to make a movie about the Manson murders because he'll make it very gratuitous. Um, uh, and no spoilers because no one else in the panel has seen it and you may not have seen it either. I didn't like the film. Dabs. Um, but uh, there is a conversation worth having about a representation of um, history, historical events, uh, specifically related to serial killers um, on screen in art. Is it okay to put serial killers and these kind of murders uh, on screen in narratives. Um, because while the filmmaker can have every intention of not glorifying them and showing how horrible and awful it is, is there not something inherently a little gratuitous in putting them in an on-screen mass media platform um, and a semi-indulgence in that? And that can also extend to fictional serial killers on screen as well. Can I just say that the Black Hood storyline was done really, really well in Riverdale. Um, no problems there with serial killers. I, I'm, they reference the serial killer gene, which is a thing that exists. So, excellent. Excellent stuff. Is it really? just, sorry, that was rude of me, but I just refuse to mute when anyone talks about Riverdale. I just want to my, like, my like, insane reaction recorded for posterity. Just me just like squeaking. Um, truly the world is sure of our times. Um, I have to say, as someone who is, I'm pretty ambivalent to negative about most true crime that's on. I've never really connected to it because um, I think a lot of the time it does just make me feel very uncomfortable. I think it has to be done in a way which never forgets that the people involved, I'm thinking of the victims here who are predominantly nearly always women in these occasions, um were real people who lived lives and had dreams and aspirations and things they wanted to do and you know they were brutally you know often you know tortured in injured violated you know and murdered and i find a lot of it makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable just because it kind of becomes a bit of a navel gaze about oh how messed up the killer is or like oh, like, here's how we evaded the police. Oh, here's how dark and interesting. Let's unpick the criminal psychology of it all. And, like, I I understand, and, I hey, I've sat there and read Wikipedia pages about all manner of stuff, as I'm sure most of us have, but I have to say I have a really... I'm, I'm naturally quite um, averse to it, and I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet. I am actually planning to go this week, um, and I think... I'd be very interested to see how Tarantino deals with that because obviously he's kind of covered 
historical, highly sensitive historical topics before, mainly in Inglorious Bastards, but also, I mean, in um, in Django dealing with slavery, which is more of a riff on black exploitation films, really, than it is, in my opinion, than it is a, a kind of a particularly interested in delving into like the cultural memory of slavery in America or whatever. It's not Twelve Years a Slave. Um, yeah, and even in the hateful eight, kind of thinking about the kind of racial and sexual politics of that film as well. I think he his kind of his disregard for history. I think again, I haven't seen it. I'm Jasper maybe can uh, can elucidate us with some ideas which are spoiler free. But I I think it can be incredibly problematic, and often I just find myself kind of repulsed by it, um, which is not very in keeping with the culture with me at the moment because I seem to just be surrounded by everyone seems to be obsessed with serial killers at the moment. So yeah, I kind of kind of talking. Uh, from the perspective of someone who had a very weird kind of addiction to a weird kind of addiction, I couldn't really understand myself. To murder? To, no, not to murder, not to murder. To crime watch <laughs> before they cancelled crime watch. Crime <laughs> <laughs> I loved crime watch. I was weirdly bizarrely heartbroken when they got rid of it. Um, I, I don't know what it was. The the kind of terror and fear that it could maybe one day be me. I don't know. Um, but my central problem, kind of, with Tarantino has kind of uh, always uh, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, some Tarantino I do love. Kill Bill um, is one of my favourite films of all time. Both of them. My central from um, uh, touches on what you say, Eugenie. Um, the uh, part where actually, uh, I think a lot of Tarantino films really do kind of forget there is kind of a person behind it. And there's always a a quote um, that that I remember of his. He was saying just after 9 yeah, I didn't really feel anything because, you know, um, I just was just watching a Hong Kong film um, where uh, where a tower kind of gets knocked down. And it it kind of does, it it sort of just reminds me actually that there's sort of like a weird kind of segment of uh, kind of the radical left kind of on Twitter that seems to really fetishise violence for the sake of it. um, and it just seems very disconnected from the fact that violence is a real thing that kind of actually does happen to people. And uh, it seems so disconnected and very kind of reflective of a life that doesn't really recognise it's a thing that happens in real life and how ugly and horrifying it is. It seems to just think it's something that happens on a screen and uh, just loves it for the sake of it. Um, yeah, so I can't really kind of connect with it kind of uh, on that basis. I'd much rather just be terrified by Crime Watch kind of uh, in my in, in the safety ish of my own home. I'd much rather be terrified by Crime Watch. Is such a is such a sentence. Um, so I I really really enjoy a good true crime podcast. One of my favorite um, true crime podcasts is like two two female comedians, two women comedians talking about like like you know serial killers. Um, and I firstly started listening to it because um, one of them was northern and from Manchester, and so when I felt homesick, it would make me feel worthy at home. Um, but I I really like that because I think the way they deal with it is quite is quite res- almost like respectful. Um, but always it always sort of baffles me the fact that there's like this weird glorification of very very horrible men. Um, like I've not seen the. I've, I've because I've been working, I've not seen like most of the hype surrounding the um, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I have, but I remember that all of the stuff that happens around like the Ted Bundy film with Zac Efron in it. And like, just why you would choose like Zac Efron to play Ted Bundy is honestly beyond me. But there's this weird kind of like glorification of like, oh, aren't they mysterious? And they've fucked up. They've got daddy issues. And it's like, look, like most people have daddy issues. Like we don't go and kill people, but like it's so, so weird to me and so scary that we're just like, these are some pretty men that went and murdered people and they had issues. And it's just, why would, 
like don't stop making that into a film please yeah go go sleep with a 40 year old don't go kill somebody like that's how you deal with daddy issues yeah exactly (laughs) good lord taryn you're really bringing the fire this evening aren't you (laughs) i bring the fire every evening that's just that's that's my value (laughs) i i completely agree with you sam to to pivot back to our serious conversation um but i it's almost like i almost i almost would be interested in dealing with something which uh, watching or reading something which is about you know why why do people become so obsessed with these these like men you know like um like the the thing about ted bundy is obviously is like i think he used to get like fan mail in prison and you know people were marrying charles manson and even the kind of allure of that is is like interesting maybe to kind of psychologically drive into you like what is the drive here for us which is like why are we so like obsessed with ingesting all this stuff and not just um crime watch but uh you know kind of the the real the real worst of it um and it's really the kind of worst of humanity really and uh yeah i but yeah i just don't i'm i'm always very unhappy about anything which kind of gets too detailed into oh what an evil genius they were oh how did they elude this and i just find all that i just find it I'm not a particularly squeamish person, but it really just rolls my stomach in a way that is uh, is like a is is very difficult for me to be able to kind of switch that off. Um, but then I get I guess saying that uh, off mic, we were just talking about this, but um, I've been watching Mindhunter, which is um, the new. It's the second series has just come out on Netflix. It's um, half of it. It's uh, executive produced by David Fincher, so there's like very high production quality. The acting's really good. And that's about the kind of development of psychological profiling in the FBI. Um, And I really enjoy that. And maybe it's because it's so clean and clinical and cold. And I think it really does go to quite prestigious efforts to make sure to never be like, ooh, how dark and interesting and how alluring these people are. And, oh, let's just, you know, get in the details about all the gore. I, I don't think it's ever exploitative. I think you have characters in that grappling with those questions, which always reflects, you know, causes you audience member to think about your relationship with this as well. Um, I would really recommend Mindhunter to anyone who is um, interested in thinking about not just interested in kind of true crime and uh, the profiling stuff, which is really interesting, uh, but also just to have something which I think is actually a very thoughtful reflection on like our relationship with like serial killers in quote the culture um you know and manson does pop up in that spoiler midway through series two so i guess if you're riding if you if you are unlike jasper riding high off the back of um once upon a time in hollywood you can uh watch some manson there and watch him get picked apart quite uh in quite a lot of detail. Eugenie, you were talking you were talking about why people become fascinated with serial killers ultimately i really do think it boils down to I am generic someone, probably a man, who has a power fantasy of being loved and adored and doing things which is societally unacceptable. And the most societally unacceptable thing is just killing people. Um, so re- really... I'm sorry, just, just what a sentence. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was the most societally acceptable or unacceptable, right? I, I misheard. Unacceptable. <laughs> that was, I just <laughs> full on, I didn't even know what I just did. You guys, you're missing out on podcast being an audio medium. I have really been <laughs> So, uh, in regards to Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, again, no spoilers, but I will say it's actually inspired me to go and read up more about the reality. So, Julia, one of our um, writers and editors, recommended um, 
a really interesting podcast called You Must Remember Manson, which is a multi-episode deep dive into the into Manson himself uh, and the Manson family and like the culture of the sixties and like the context which produced him. And even just from listening to the the first episode, again, I only saw the film earlier today. Um, there's so much about how the murders um, and the entire the the family itself um and manson's desire to to have that family and have these adoring fans basically um comes from old hollywood and from the cinematic context and just none of that is actually touched on in once upon a time um in hollywood uh and there's so much there with regards to um charles manson's racism uh and misogyny um like uh in, in real life he convinced his followers that uh there was going to be a race war um and that they needed to go to the dead valley and hide in a hole in the ground uh where they would go to an underground city and then while 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 the the black people were killing all the white people and then rise up and take their place as the rightful rulers of the world uh it, it is totally mental um it's probably like batshit crazy stuff but like i f- i find it int- interesting when people think and do stuff which is so obviously crazy and i want to understand why and how they get to their mental space not making any direct comparisons with these people but it is the same kind of thing in politics at the moment i am invariably interested in how people and politicians and activists etc etc get to the space where they're like yeah actually i think food and medicine shortages are a a vote winner i think that's actually probably fine and if you say it's not well you're talking the country down you can fuck off so i think that's probably the second side of it in addition to the other side being like the kind of power fantasy typically male power fantasy um i'm just wanting to know how people get to this space which is so outrageously not normal um and it would be nice if uh more media actually like touched on that and didn't just go to like oh they had daddy issues um so like i mean maybe tarantino probably isn't the best filmmaker to have done this but i wouldn't mind seeing a story about like how charles manson was like a raging racist and how uh the cinematic context at the time informed um the murders um i mean there's certainly other other stories to be told as well but like that that isn't a story i would immediately turn my nose up at seeing what i do turn my nose up at seeing is just like pointless inclusion of serial killers and like gratuitous fetishization of serial killers because they kill a lot of people and because that's tapping into the male power fantasy which i mentioned the girls by emma klein is really 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 good it's loosely based on the charles manson murders and it's about like two girls like just in the 60s like just living their lives having a good summer and then like they join a cult and like based on the fact that it's loosely based on the manson murders you can sort of tell where that one's going um but it's really really good like it like uh, sort of talking about like cult psychology and like how particularly like young women get involved in those groups i really really enjoyed it it's very graphic but i read it like two summers ago and i was like brilliant yeah i'll add it to my list thank you once again uh you've been sending in your questions and we've got a bunch of good fun questions uh james at chill of the people uh writer and editor for the social review asked which of you would be best placed to lead a government of national unity out of me eugenie tiran and sam come on let's fight it out 
which of us wants to be Prime Minister? I am quite happy for everyone to compromise and just do as I say. <laughs> um, I really don't want to be Prime Minister because I'm bad with um, any form of responsibility. Um, <laughs> I, I say as an officer of the Students' Union. <laughs> um, not me. Please not me. I, I just think I'm not Sam. <laughs> yeah, I always envision myself as more of a power behind the throne kind of person. So yeah, I was never particularly interested yeah. in uh, in being PM. So I'm happy to let Tyrion think he's in control. But really, yeah. Well, I mean, I always envisage myself as being a power behind the throne. But like you know, when you need a government of national unity, that really kind of calls on those sorts of people. You know, do you think you're Peter Mandelson? Is that it? No, but I think Peter Mandelson should lead the government of national unity. <laughs> That's gonna be my answer. You stole my answer. <laughs> I think, you know, this is, well, I mean, already we've got some unity for once on who should lead the government of national <laughs> unity. I, yes! I am, he, should, I am, he should walk into Downing Street and the, the, the death march should play or whatever it is from the death <laughs> stream. And you know what? He'll sort us all out. He was an EU trade what, commissioner in... What is, more, what is more government of national unity than having a lord as prime minister? Like... <laughs> Dun, 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 See, I'm into it. I'm into it. I reckon I I'm gonna say I would happily serve as prime minister in government of national unity because <laughs> um because how I inv- if if I were to ever become like a politician, I would want to be I would very much want to have someone else be the power behind the throne. I would happily be like the smiling front man who like <laughs> sticks his thumb up in photos and like is just like the general like jovial ambassador for the country and like gives nice speeches i would be so up for that i don't really want to do any proper work so government national unity like relatively short-term position completely powerless rudderless government uh i'd probably be quite up for and let you guys do the work if you guys want to be the my the peter manderson and i'll be the like early tony blair Finding it very early. emblematic here of the, the gender politics that uh, the woman and the non-binary person have both been like, oh, I don't think I really want to do that. And both of the men yeah. have been like, it oh, must yes. be me. Oh, I mean, <laughs> Eugenie, I think we pretty much did just... <laughs> I thought Eugenie and I basically just ended up on the same page there to kind of like oh, battle oh, it out. Okay, as the people yeah, no, that's, no, okay, well, yeah. Um, okay, you can retract my me. slightly bitchy comment. Uh, <laughs> I would like limited power. Put me, put me in like comms. I'm happy to or, like, just love comms. I'm happy so to just Sam's get numbers. Alistair Campbell. I'm, <laughs> don't, I'm, don't I'm put it like that. I'm Big Petey. That's my personal nickname for my close friend Peter Mandelson. I'm I'm happy to just kind of get numbers as like the cat, the dead cat on the table. Like I'm just constantly happy to just go out, just get attention for something to distract whenever we're about to no deal or whatever, or stop no deal or whenever anything's about to go to shit. I'm happy to just go and just clown, clown it. So so this has become kind of like our fantasy social review cabinet hasn't it oh no we become those we, people who would we which, which positions would we all want i mean i can't we can't really do it fully because the vast majority of the social review editorial team is not here uh but but we should do an um, article about this for christmas we should it's like do a christmas we special do. yes yeah, yeah, yeah right you heard it here first that's gonna happen um everyone not- is so looking forward to that <laughs> it's gonna get tens uh, of clicks a whole 12 people yeah and it will all be us um this seeks nicely into a serious question from at praise praise majors majors Majors. okay praise majors we love Um, you kate bush respecter uh why do people hype up politicians like 
uh, Ken Clark or Yvette Cooper without fully understanding their policy positions. Does the idea of them really appeal so much, even if the real person is antithetical to their beliefs? For example, Ken Clark's position is currently to leave the EU while remaining in the customs union, uh, and Yvette Cooper hasn't actually backed a second referendum. So this is in reference to the government of national unity proposed by Liberal Democrats, and they say, well, Joe Swinson says, oh, we should have a unity figure in the House to lead that government like uh, like Clark or Cooper, and then have a second referendum and remain in the EU, even though neither of those people are in favour of that policy. Um, uh, in answer to your direct question, does the idea of them really appeal so much? Um, yes, I think that is just 100% it. Um, there seems to be a desire for a, and I quote because I've seen tweets like this, an apolitical figure from the House of Commons, even though that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> no MP is apolitical. Um, sorry. Um <laughs> But but there there is that desire for someone you think it'd be obvious. sensible yeah you'd think you'd think <laughs> sensible in quotation marks uh, to save everyone um, and there is this idea that there are still grown ups waiting around who can save us from disaster I mean like I think that's a comforting thing to think not necessarily true for starters because those aforementioned grown ups don't actually agree with your signature policy policy position uh, and also because. Brexit is a crisis which has fucked everybody up. Uh, there isn't any grown-up who has one thing which they know will definitely work. Um, no one really knows what's going to happen. So this idea that there are some people just waiting to swoop in the wings, sort everything out, be like, ah, oh, thank God they're there. I'd like to take it the other way. Like, okay. if it's if, if like no-deal Brexit is so horrible, and it's like, well, I mean, obviously you've got to do whatever you've got to do to stop that. Why is it like kind of this, uh, oh yeah, let's choose someone who's like kind of reasonable, who everyone likes, the one that's everyone knows. Why don't we go the other way? It's like, and have someone who people don't like as the, the Prime Minister briefly. Because like, Another you know, can- Inclusive argument for Peter Mandelson to become exactly <laughs> like choose someone who kind of makes you go, oh god, are they really prime minister? Because that will make it so that it's only temporary. Like, Boris okay, Johnson what's it's up? Well, no, 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 no. But as in, like, someone who would stop No Deal, right? Like, so <laughs> Keith Vaz, Keith Vaz, Keith Vaz. You don't no, really no. want. <laughs> There we go. See, you're only going to have him in as long as it takes to stop No Deal. Like you're going to try and get rid of him. Oh God, what's happening in the background? I I can only hear clapping. Oh God, the armed social review militia has arrived to uh, to take him away. Oh no, I've finally done the take so bad. I just advocated for a week of Keith Vaz. I mean, I mean, I don't want, I don't want Keith Vaz, but I do, I do agree with you. We should find someone who is universally disliked because that will ensure it is a short-term government national unity. Maybe, maybe in that case, the Lib Dem should back Corbyn because they very clearly despise him. Final question from uh, Callum O'Dwyer, a friend of the podcast. Um, if you had unlimited resources and opportunity to retrain or reskill down a different route, what would you pick? Physics. Ooh. Cool. I, I that's, that's very definitive. I respect that. I have no yeah. idea. Physics, because um, anytime you read about anyone who's like really made it anywhere, like uh, oh god, like kind of like the chief engineers of like Facebook or an or like Google, basically anything that's like super high level probably gets paid shitload. Seems like it's kind of like breaking the world. Uh, it's always a physics graduate, and I'd like to be someone who uses those powers for good, but still gets paid shitloads. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I'll use them for evil, you know. I'll, 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 I'll just, you know, be really mysterious, have daddy issues, and end up on Crime Watch instead of like retraining in physics. This is your fault. Inst- okay, good. The That's fine. Government while you're doing it. Uh, I'd be a chef. Ooh. Yes, I love that. 
I went on a cooking course when I was like 14 and it was really fun. I'd love to be a chef. I think I'm sick at cooking. Whether anybody else agrees is, you know, I don't care. I can just, I could just be a chef and maybe a TV chef. Or yeah. a makeup artist. I'd love to be like Zoella. <laughs> this is like kind of going <laughs> to like, like kind of toddler sort of like, uh, yeah, yeah no, I could be maybe. a chef or a dinosaur. Or... <laughs> I, I would be a chef or um, a makeup blogger um, and like do like hair dye tutorials because I am famed for the fact that I routinely dye my hair badly. Um, and I think that people could get a real kick out of that. I'd love to share my story with the world, you know. <laughs> um, I think that story you have is a great really important. YouTuber voice, I have to say. It sounds like you yeah, really thanks. Hey guys, it's Sam. As uh, today, <laughs> you can witness me crying over an essay and putting some blue stuff on my hair. What could go wrong? Stay That's Sam J J A for your discount. Code. <laughs> 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 thanks, guys. Love you so much. Bye. Type in the discount code. <laughs> Yeah, I think if I had the ability to, like, maybe retrain is, like, not quite the right thing, but, like, if I could, like, go back and, like, hone, hone like, a skill, it would be um, speaking other languages apart from English. If I could, like, go back to myself when I was, like, maybe, like, six or seven or, like, you know, those early years, which everyone always says is, like, the mm. easiest time to become, like, fluent in French or German or whatever it might be. And I'd just be, like, I, I just had to stop speaking then because I imagine what unholy hell of torrent of abuse i would say to myself be like you know you would save yourself a lot of stress and difficulty in your in your in your early to mid 20s if you decided that now was the point when you wanted to learn german and latin rather than uh at a later date for your your future uh career ideas but uh, learn irish learn irish and become an eu translator because there are <laughs> so many jobs going in that uh, because they there aren't that many people who just know Irish that are around. So yeah, that's apparently a real a real good earner if you, you heard it want to first. do anything. Social review I'm listeners. Just, I'm, just, I'm just writing that down. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, for everyone who's made right. it made it to this point in the podcast, congratulations! You've won you've won a free piece of career advice from Terence. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I could, if I had unlimited resources and opportunity to retrain or reskill. Um, I would try and get good at STEM subjects and maths um, because um, I lament the fact that I am not particularly good at maths or science. Um, I had really bad experiences with both throughout school. Um, I was just not very good. I got my C in foundation GCSE maths. Um, I almost got an E in my sciences. I was predicting an E because I was one of those horrible obnoxious messing around students until year 11 um and then when i was like actually i don't want an e at gcse uh, i knuckled down and got a b thank you all very much um <laughs> i wish that i had actually listened and that i could say that i'm someone who could hold a conversation about physics or chemistry or biology and be like oh yeah when i hear techno babble in films i vaguely understand what they're saying um and could just do like practical tech things like i don't know 3d print something or like look at a car and be like oh yeah i know what that does um but I, i'm not i'm not and i'm also incredibly envious of people who are like that so who are stem science mathy engineering students but who also are really good at like creative humanity stuff who are like oh yeah i'm also like an actor or like i play music and i also can like talk to you about red blood cells i'm just oh fuck off like, you're not allowed to be good at both um because i'm only good at one and i'd like to be good at both 
You've been listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast with music as per usual, sweet of a mouth, composed by Kevin McLeod. Thanks very much to Sam from the Durham Students' Union for joining us to talk about uh, access and higher education policy. And if you enjoy the episode and you enjoy the podcast in general, then go check out our website, thesocialreview.co.uk, to have a read of some of the really great articles we've been publishing over the past couple of weeks. Uh, This week, past week, uh, we've had a really good piece on the history and politics of night walking from Morgan Jones. We had a really great piece on Israel and the increasingly distant possibility of a two-state solution for Palestine uh, from Stefan Rolnick uh, at Progress. Uh, And we also had The Moral Case Against Billionaires by Lucy Friend. Thanks again, and you'll hear us again next week for more cutting-edge news and analysis, as per usual. Okay, have a good week. Bye-bye.